0: Welcome once again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation of Church History Study with Dr. Ron Bartholomew.
1: Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi, class. I'd like to invite you to, to our church history class today. We're saying we're the, the quest for self-sufficiency, 1858-1868. Uh, I think you'll find to what we're learned today new, interesting, but also new.
0: Growth in the Church in the Utah Corridor During the decade following the Utah War, 1858 to 1868, approximately 150 new towns were founded. New areas opened up for settlement, including Bear Lake Valley, Cache Valley, Pavant Valley, and part of San Pete Valley, the Severe River Valley, Virgin River Valley, and Muddy River Valley. Expansion continued in the inner corridor through 1890 while no attempt was made to settle colonies in the Outer Corridor. The main focus in colonization was the contributions a colony could make towards territorial self-sufficiency. That is so interesting. Parawan and Cedar City were established throughout the 1860s as part of the Cotton Mission. October 1861 539 families were sent to Utah's Dixie, St. George, to raise cotton, grapes, figs, flax, hemp, rice, and sugar cane.
1: And that without air conditioning.
0: Two years later, 1864, 59 families were sent to Muddy River Valley, Lake Mead, for similar reasons. Although the cotton mission eventually failed, The saints hang on through the 1860s and 70s. Alkali soil, alternating flood and drought, grasshopper and cricket infestations, Indian troubles, and back-breaking toil under a broiling sun. These and other conditions caused the less than hardy to pull up stakes and try their luck elsewhere. The church was eventually forced to discontinue the muddy colonies, because it became part of Nevada and was too heavily taxed. Tobacco and grapes did grow well, but the temptation was too great to use these two crops for for purposes which were directly opposed to teaching of the word of wisdom, and despite grapevines yielding 1,700 tons in a single year, which produced 3,000 gallons of wine, an extremely profitable cash crop, the saints were counseled to pull up their vines, which they did.
1: Now I want you to think about that for a second. These things we don't understand you Utah without air conditioning. It's so hot they can hardly stand it. They finally find a crop that works. They grow it, it sells. The rest of the year, so they pull up their vines. That is amazing faithfulness.
0: Colonies to the north were also established for the express purpose of producing flax or mining lead, zinc, silver, Or coal.
1: The difference between the 19th century, which we're in now, and the 20th century, which we'll get to in a few weeks, is this. In the 19th century, the church tried to do everything itself, tried to create a colony of cooperation. By the 20th century, they decided not to do that anymore, they go to capitalism. That's a huge story which we'll tell along the way.
0: It is of great importance that the institution of mission was applied after 1848 to colonization and economic activity. That is an important concept. At the same general conferences at which persons were called to preach the gospel abroad or in the U.S., others were called in the same spirit to mine gold, mine and manufacture iron, raise silk, settle disagreeable country, And teach the Indians the art of agriculture.
1: And they were all considered legitimate missions.
0: The zeal and enthusiasm of sharing the gospel for these missionaries was transferred to building the kingdom economically. Latter-day Saints were proud to regard these economic missions as the spiritualization of temporal activity.
1: That is quite inspiring. Here's a picture of the Washington County Cotton Factory. Uh, later it was, this is a later picture taken of the same factory. This is a picture of what the factory looks like today. You walk inside and see it. As you go inside, you can see it's, it's stored today, basically. But if you look up, you can see where the cotton mill was and where, where they tried to create the cotton industry in St. George, Utah, Old Irontown.
0: Established in 1868 by Ebenezer Hanks and others who organized the Great Western Iron Manufacturing Company, a cooperative enterprise Officer. officers were E. Hanks, President,
1: Homer Duncan, Vice President, and Joseph Hittman Blair, Secretary. Pounds displayed. uh.
0: They produced at least
1: uh, each eight hours a day.
0: The plantation also ran at night. The enterprise was taken over in 1882 by the Iron Manufacturing Company, as Utah, with George Q. Cannon president, Thomas Taylor vice president, and manager John C. Cutler secretary. A railroad was moved there from Nevada to haul Coal from Cedar Canyon to Little Pinto, the name given to this town site. Pioneer Iron Production Producing iron in the 19th century began with the combination of raw ore with a, moist, with a mixture of fuel and limestone. This was called a charge, which burdened the furnace. Charcoal proved the fuel of choice in Iron City. It was created by burning or smoldering wood in an oxygen oxygen-free environment. Using charcoal benefited the workers at Iron City because wood was readily available and it produced a softer, more palatable piece of iron. Limestone served as a catalyst that assisted in melting iron ore and removed the impurities. A constant temperature was maintained by a means of a water-powered bellow system. The one mixture burden would heat up and separate the heavier iron and sank to the bottom, while the impurities bound to the limestone rose to the top as slag. The charcoal kiln. Charcoal was the fuel of choice for the ironworks at Iron City. Charcoal is created by burning or smoldering wood in a reduced oxygen environment. Workers would stack piles of juniper and pinion inside the beehive-shaped kiln and light a fire underneath. The holes you see in the far well could be plugged or opened as needed to increase or decrease air circulation. It took approximately 12 days for one kiln to produce 50 bushels of charcoal. This would product, provide enough fuel to process one ton of iron ore. Iron City originally had two kilns. However, due to the destructive power of weather and looters, only this one remains.
1: <clears> this <throat> is a picture of the inside of it. Those are the holes they would plug up to get the oxygen out. Here's another. Here's the kiln they put the iron in after they produced the coal. Another notable attempt at self-sufficiency
0: was the church trains. During the eight years, eighteen sixty-one through sixty-eight, these wagon trains traveled between Salt Lake City and the Missouri River. Two thousand wagons sent twenty-five hundred rescue missionaries, with seventeen thousand five hundred oxen, carrying one million three hundred thousand pounds of flour to successfully bring 20,500 immigrants west, costing the church $2,400,000, almost all provided by voluntary donations. Despite their attempts to stay apart from the world, church members actually experienced unanticipated economic benefits from various outside sources. Camp Floyd, with 4,000 federal troops, and 3,000 non-Mormon suppliers, Latter-day Saints were able to barter for consumer goods and sell much of their farm produce and other production items. The greatest gains were from official church contracts. In addition, both the church and individual members profited from the occasional sale of army surplus goods. In 1861, when the post was abandoned, $4 million worth of property and goods was sold to the Saints for $100,000. William Clayton wrote, The Buchanan Expedition cost the government millions, accomplishing nothing except making many of the Saints comparatively rich and improving the circumstances in Utah. Number two is Overland Mail and Telegraph. Despite its $500,000 loss, the short-lived Pony Express Venture provided a substantial market for Latter-day Saint produce and labor. The construction of the transcontinental telegraph line was partly a Mormon project. Salt Lake City was the junction between the, and West lines the and East, and West lines. East and West Lines, and both divisions granted contracts to the Saints. Number three. As California volunteers, in 1862, 1,500 troops established a camp on the east bench of Salt Lake to prevent Indian hostilities and keep an eye on the Mormons. Supplying these troops was a lucrative business for the saints. Commanding Officer Patrick Connor hated the church and tried to subvert it by establishing the mining industry. Although the intentionally simulated mining industry in Utah failed to destroy the church, it opened a large cash market for Mormon Mormon produce. Utah was the most economical source of food for nearly all the mines between the Rockies and the Sierra. Much gold, silver, and cash flowed into Mormon pockets because of the trade. Despite these various windfalls, they did not lead to the abandonment of self-sufficiency as the goal because, number one, church leaders discouraged mining by members of the church, and two, they wisely used finances acquired by the various windfalls for manufacturing equipment and agricultural improvements. Far from succumbing to the opening of markets all around them, church members withdrew themselves to prevent the development of a specialized, market-oriented economy. While the nation was at war and prospectors mined and merchants accumulated fortunes, Latter-day Saints struggled to build their kingdom without without the help of tie of or ties to outside economy economies.
1: That's the most important point. Um... Uh, the Latter-day Saints struggled to build the kingdom without the help of this these outside economies. The Black Hawk War, 1865-1867. It's a total change in topic, but all this happening at the same time, so we have to talk about different topics at the same time. It's the Black Hawk War.
0: Beginning in 1865, certain northern Utes and their allies were led by a brilliant Indian leader named Antonga. Black Hawk by the Whites, in a series of intense and successful raids on livestock owned by Latter-day Saint settlers of Utah. From 1865 to 1872, literally thousands of horses and cattle were run off and marketed in a complex Native American trading system involving white and Hispanic middlemen and covering a huge piece of country, including most of Utah, as well as parts of Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Wyoming. Meanwhile, Brigham Young and his followers responded with vigorous but ineffective military operations conducted by the Nauvoo Legion, a church-run militia. Latter-day Saints in central and southern Utah considered themselves in a state of open war, They built forts, abandoned dozens of settlements while chasing their elusive adversaries with little success. Later in the summer of 1867, Blackhawk made peace with the Latter-day Saints. This war was unique in Western history. Accurately sensing the Latter-day Saints' desire to avoid attracting attention to themselves in a post-Civil War anti-polygamy climate Black Hawk successfully and repeatedly attacked Latter-day Saint livestock herds without the fear of federal intervention, which had successfully snuffed out Indian aggressions elsewhere. Brigham Young directed Latter-day Saints to keep quiet regarding raiders' activities and to deal with them locally. Blackhawk used this policy to play the whites against the whites. He also exploited the Latter-day Saints theological position regarding his people as Lamanites. In the end, and against Brigham Young's policies, the Latter-day Saints colluded with federal officials to gain control over the land and move the Indians onto reservations. The irony of this is found in the fact that Latter-day Saints themselves were displaced. Both groups were hopelessly trapped amidst violent demographic and political positions that threaten the very existence of their communities.
1: And so the Indians and the Mormons found themselves in the same place. They were, quote, not supposed to be there, unquote. But we eventually win, or I guess you say win, we eventually are able to get the Indians to move off our land by colluding with federal officials.
0: Now as the spring of 1869 was turning into summer, Joseph F. was preparing for a new challenge.
1: Joseph Smith.
0: His cousins, Alexander and David Smith, were coming to the territory. Sons of the prophet Joseph Smith, they lived in Illinois and belonged to the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Alexander and David sustained their older brother Joseph Smith III as a prophet and the rightful successor of their father's work.
1: You know, what's interesting is we don't have any of these challenges today. We're not fighting with the R.E.L.D. Church. We're not fighting with the U.S. government for land. But our challenges have changed. We've always had challenges as members of the church, always.
0: Like Joseph Smith III, Alexander and David believed that their father had never taught or practiced plural marriage.
1: Even though it's been proven without question that he had at least 33 plural wives.
0: They claimed instead that Brigham Young had introduced the principle after their father's death. Knowing the saints would dispute his claims about his father and plural marriage, Alexander had come prepared with statements that his father and Hiram Smith had published in the Times and Seasons, the church's newspaper in Nauvoo, which appeared to condemn plural marriage and to deny the saints' involvement in that practice.
1: This is true, and it's a long and complex story. Let me just say this about it. Joseph and Smith had to deny plural marriage while they were in Nauvoo publicly, even though they were practicing it privately.
0: There was also the Lord's revelation on marriage, which had been recorded by Joseph in 1843 and published for the first time in 1852. The revelation described how a man and woman could be sealed together for eternity by priesthood authority. It also explained that God sometimes commanded plural marriage to raise up children in righteous families and help fulfill his covenant to bless Abraham with a numberless posterity.
1: The interesting thing about uh, Smith brothers coming to Utah was they believed they were right. Joseph Smith believed he was right. So you have two two, uh, cousins, their cousins, Alexander and Joseph F. Smith are cousins fighting against each other based on what they believe is right.
0: Joseph F. Smith began collecting signed statements from people who had been involved in early plural marriages. Some of the women he spoke to had been sealed to Joseph Smith for this life and the next. Others had been sealed to the prophet for eternity alone. Joseph F. also gathered information about what his Aunt Emma knew about the practice. His oldest sister, Lavina, had lived with Emma for a while after most of the saints had traveled west. She testified that Emma had once told her that she consented to and witnessed her husband's ceilings to some of his plural wives. Which is true. Alexander and David Smith arrived in Salt Lake City that summer and stayed their first night with Joseph F.'s older brother, John, the presiding patriarch of the church, and his wife, Helen. Two days later, Alexander and David called at Brigham Young's office, hoping to get permission to preach in the tabernacle, which was sometimes made available for other religious groups to hold meetings. Brigham considered the brother's request, but he and other church leaders were wary of their motives and did not grant permission. In the historian's office, Joseph F. Smith continued to collect evidence that Joseph Smith had taught and practiced plural marriage, greatly expanding what he and the church knew about plural marriage in Nauvoo.
1: Which, of course, is all kept secret <clears throat> so that people practicing it would be indicted by the federal government.
0: Aside from gathering more statements, he combed to the journals of William Clayton who had been the Prophet Joseph's clerk, friend, and confidant. William's journal was one of the few records from Nauvoo that detailed early plural marriages, and it provided evidence of the Prophet's participation.
1: So you've got two two brothers here, Alexander and Joseph F., who are going to go head-to-head over their belief that Joseph didn't or did practice plural marriage.
0: Alexander and Davis Smith, meanwhile, were still in the city, attracting crowds whenever they spoke. Hoping to weaken Brigham Young's authority, wealthy merchants who opposed the church's cooperative movement rented a large Protestant church where the brothers could give lectures, criticizing Brigham's leadership and the church. As Alexander had done three years earlier, they also relied heavily on quotations, from the times and seasons to deny their father's to deny their father's involvement in plural marriage.
1: So sad.
0: At the same time, Joseph F. Smith and other church leaders gave sermons on Navu plural marriage in ward buildings throughout the city. On August 8th, Joseph F. spoke to a congregation in Salt Lake City. He presented some of the evidence he had collected about early plural marriages and addressed his father's and uncle's statements about the practice in the times and seasons. I only know these facts, he told the congregation. Everybody knows the people then were not prepared for these things, and it was necessary to be cautious, he said. They were in the midst of enemies and in a state where this doctrine would have sent them to the penitentiary. Which is true. F. believed his father and uncle had done what they did to preserve their lives and protect other men and women who were also practicing plural marriage.
1: That's why we also believe what we what we teach the church.
0: The brethren were not free as they are here, he continued. The devil was raging about Nauvoo, and there were the traitors on every hand. After introducing the brothers to sisters who had practiced plural marriage in Nauvoo, Along with priesthood holders, who had also practiced it, and had performed the marriages, the brothers were shocked.
1: They were shocked. Alexander and David Smith were shocked.
0: Upon returning to Nauvoo area, they approached their mother regarding the newfound evidence.
1: This is a very curious part of church history because Emma would refuse to answer. She would not tell them how she felt about it or what she knew about it.
0: When asked if Joseph Smith practiced plural marriage, Emma refused to answer. Alexander took this as a no. <laughs> David Hiram took it as a yes and spent the rest of his life 33 years in an insane asylum where he was visited and cared for by his older brother, Joseph Smith III.
1: Can you imagine spending 33 years in an asylum because? You did not believe that your mother told the truth about final marriage. This happened to David Smith, and, and he lived there until he died.
0: The Transcontinental Railroad. Meanwhile, Brigham Young was enthused about the railroad because of how it would impact the Saints' migration to Utah.
1: It probably feels like we're all over the place, but we all the a sudden, at the same time, we just gotta cover the different topics one at a time.
0: Public officials outside of Utah were also enthusiastic. They believed it would destroy the church. Brigham Young was believed to be an evil autocrat who was holding his people hostage in Utah. Which, of course, wasn't the truth. They believed that once a way out for them was provided, they would all gladly flee to the east.
1: <laughs> Which didn't happen.
0: Despite the advantages for immigration, Brigham Young viewed all traffic with the Gentile world with misgivings. During the Utah War, he declared that the government could never conquer the Mormons by sending in armies. Armies can can destroy, but they cannot build. The easiest way to conquer the Mormons, he said, would be for the government to pay Gentiles to carry in merchandise year after year until the people had come to depend upon it. The saints would then have lost their individuality and collective loyalty.
1: Which basically is what happened. Uh, the government brought in merchandise year to year to be able to depend on it, and now it, it's difficult to tell that there's a moment and a in the state of Utah.
0: The arrival of the railroad.
1: Therefore, the railroad brought at least four problems to the Saints. At least four, I'm not saying these are the only four, these are at least four, number one. Number one. How would
0: they come up with the cash to fund the immigration of 3,000 persons per year?
1: That would cost a lot of money. Two,
0: how would their economy stand up against the flood of cheap imports?
1: That's also very tough. I have no idea what the answer to that question is. Number three.
0: Three, how would the leaders of the church who would discourage mining in favor of agriculture deal with the probability of tremendous expansion of mining... In the Great Basin. Wow. Number four. In addition, approximately 10 to 20 percent of church members lived in polygamy,
1: which was seen as barbaric
0: in the U.S.
1: Those are four big problems, and there are probably other problems as well. But plural marriage, the money industry, etc. How do you come come about these problems? That's a great, great question.
0: May 10, 1869, when the two rail lines met at Promontory Summit, 53 miles northwest of Ogden, Utah, the Saints almost immediately began the Utah Northern Central and Southern Railroads, improving transportation throughout the territory. Salt Lake City eventually became the business hub of the Mountain West. Its central location, the abundance of skilled and professional labor, and above all, its supply of raw materials and consumer goods all contributed to that end. In the face of the discovery of minerals in the Western Mountains in the 1860s, church leaders found it increasingly difficult to maintain distinctive institutions. Knowing full well the elements of the world the railroad would bring, Brigham Young implemented the following. One are the School of the Prophets, organized in Provo, Salt Lake, Logan, Ogden, and other principal settlements. 5,000 priesthood holders.
1: We're members of the School of the Prophets. That's a lot.
0: Wages of Utah workers were reduced to ensure that local products
1: would remain competitive. Although having your wages reduced was difficult for the states to endure,
0: Church members were encouraged to purchase goods from each other rather than outsiders. Home industry stressed, saints produced their own textiles, food, iron, coal, and paper. Because of the railroad, the School of the Prophets also encouraged the members to boycott goods produced by church enemies, clean up their homes, yard, and public places. Contracted with the Union Pacific Railroad to have members of the church build the line through Utah from the east and the west, along with spurs from Ogden to Salt Lake City and the southern Utah line, thus providing jobs and keeping the undesirable railroad employee element out of Salt Lake City. Revitalizing the Relief Society Along with the reorganization of the School of the Prophets, to help keep the men well-educated and following righteous principles, Brigham Young reorganized the Relief Society, making Eliza R. Snow, the most respected woman in the territory, its president. Not only would 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 these sisters be trained on caring for the poor, the uneducated, and the needy, it was his intention to use this organization to teach them how to make their own clothing thus avoiding the financial hazard of all that money spent on clothing leaving the territory, as well as keeping a style of our own versus the styles of the world.
2: Directly in front of the DUP Museum is this statue honoring Eliza Roxy Snow, a gifted poetess who composed the lyrics of several beloved LDS hymns. Eliza was born at Beckett, Berkshire County, Massachusetts, January 21, 1804, baptized at Kirtland, Ohio, April 5, 1835, sealed to Joseph Smith as a plural wife in 1842, served as the second president of the Relief Society, and figured prominently in the events of church history as a poetess and a writer until her death at Salt Lake City in 1889. Her gift of expression captured the spirit of the Restoration, and her talented compositions greatly reflect the foundational principles of Latter-day Saint theology taught by the Prophet Joseph Smith. Eliza began the pioneer journey in June, arriving in the Salt Lake Valley in October 1847. On December 5, 1887, this remarkable woman passed away at the age of 84. Funeral services were held in the assembly hall, after which she was buried in President Brigham Young's private family cemetery. Death held no fear for her, viewing it as simply a door leading to the eternal world. She had requested that no black be worn at her funeral, and the assembly hall on Temple Square was decked in beautiful white draperies and white flowers.
0: The approaching completion of the Transcontinental Railroad appears to be a major reason for the organization of the Relief Society. Not only would the sisters be tempted by the vices of cheap tea and coffee, it would bring the tastes and fashions of the outside world into the Great Basin, which would negatively impact local production and cash flow. End of Mormonism Leading politicians and preachers had confidently predicted that the railroad would mean the end of Mormonism at least the end of distinctive elements, such as plural marriage. So widely held was this view that the strongly supported national anti-polygamy legislation in the late 1860s momentarily abandoned in hopes that such measures would no longer be necessary.
1: Well, as anyone watching this presentation knows, the end of Mormonism did not occur. they thought it would. They thought the saints would being held hostage, would be held like slaves, but they were not. And the end of Mormonism did not occur. Um, this is a good place for us to stop. We'll start it here next time. I just want to remind you of three things before we start. Before we stop. Number one. The church was led by a prophetic inspiration with Brigham Young. He was transformed to keep the, the saints separate from the world. It didn't work. We ended up becoming part of the world, but while for, for, well, he was training, it really worked. It was it really tried hard. Number two, the Holy City was disbanded, of course, with, with, with Emma Smith, but was, was reorganized and reinstated with Eliza Snow, and I'm so grateful for her and the great contribution she made to the saints. It's difficult to think what the church would be without Eliza Snow. She was truly a wonderful woman. And finally, number three, the church changes over time we go from this cooperative movement in the 19th century to more of a capitalistic movement in the 20th century. But it's because of the the, the timing of the, the, the of, the, of the changes that occurred during those the times. So we need to always stay current with the current prophets and apostles so that we make sure that whatever they're doing is what we're doing, because they will change too. Every time this is true and I say it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: Thank you for being with us today for another segment of Dr. Bartholomew's insightful review of aspects of church history. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. When Music Was Music, in the Golden Days of Radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in Church History with Dr. Bartholomew.